Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to How to Pakistan. I've got Musharraf Zaidi with me, and I'm very excited today. I'll let Musharraf open and explain who our guest is. Well, that is very, very kind of you. Uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum to, to everyone, and thanks for thanks for making us sort of have the discipline to keep doing this because the reaction and the response from friends, from people we don't know, it's just been phenomenal. I will remind listeners a little bit of effort, especially in iTunes, if you can put in a nice review you or even a not so nice just don't put in a really crappy one that would be that would be terrible abhi abhi to mostay ka scene chal raha hai na listening to it koi star bhi nahi de raha ha please put us a star we'd, we'd like a few stars if, yeah. if if you don't mind but uh, just again to thank the listeners uh, alhamdulillah the the feedback's been phenomenal the reason fussy's excited and i know he's excited because when i texted him with the kind of idea you know usually with fussy you have to wait friends of fussy's will know You have to wait. You have to wait a while for a response. So I sent Fussy a text. I said, "Fussy, the great Pratap Banu Mehta is in town and we should totally do a podcast with him." And I didn't really know cuz I'm I'm like a I'm a bit of a nerd on the stuff and so like I know PBM and I didn't know if Fussy knew and like You thought I knew PBJ. <laughs> So anyway, that's the long way of setting up the fact that we are so honored and so excited to have one of the great global public intellectuals and certainly sort of somebody who's probably peerless in South Asia, uh, certainly in India. Uh, we have a few smart people here in Pakistan, so but certainly, you know, there's few people that measure up. Pratap Banu Mehta is in Islamabad. We were doing something uh yesterday and today um with a larger group that that was focused on South Asia and the region, and I asked Pratap if he'd be willing to do the podcast and he didn't even hesitate and so delighted to have you with us pratap thank you so much for doing this and you should know that you are uh, the first studio guest we we had another mm-hmm. guest but that was in a different venue you're also the first non pakistan well op was also technically well, sort of non- well he was pakistani australian yes. but pratap is is indian all the way yes. and and so our first sort of foreign guest is i think quite poignantly and quite correctly from uh from so the republic of india it's a very high bar yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so welcome to the show pratap uh it's a real privilege to be here and frankly quite intimidating with the talent just sitting in this room i mean oh. there's already so much energy you know i know this is going to be quite overwhelming <laughs> So what we don't want is people to be thinking hashtag #amn ki asha or anything, right? So, <laughs> absolutely. So, so that was very nice, but let's mix it up a little yeah, bit and not be so nice to each other yes, for the rest of the show. Yeah. I agree. I'm all for it. Um, although, anyway. although our friend Umar Varaj says that you're the nice, kind, gentle sort of host, and it's amazing. I'll just accept it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, yes, go ahead. Well, I, just to introduce Pratap for those listeners that don't know who he is, Pratap is a scholar, an academic, a public intellectual. He is based in New Delhi. He's got his own think tank which is called the Center for Policy Research. He is much like Fasizaka, he is a product of the great Oxford University. He did uh, postgraduate work at Princeton. I didn't know any of this because what I knew about Pratap uh, when we met yesterday for the first time, we've known each other sort of from a distance and we've exchanged messages and emails, but what I I assumed 
that Pratap, because of the way he writes, he has a column in the Indian Express. And if you've never read it, then that's something you should RSS into your, like, sort of uh, feed. Maybe not RSS. I was going to say, don't ever associate me. <laughs> oh, so that's the end of our security clearance. <laughs> no, no. What I meant was your something syndicated something, right? Yes. The, uh, the internet Really thing. simple syndication. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and to the listeners, I just noticed the color of this office is saffron. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of subliminal messages yes. going on. No, uh, so Pratap, when you read Pratap's pieces, you don't get you, get... you clearly get somebody who's incredibly sort of observant and, and sensitive to what, what's happening globally as well, but especially in it, within India. But the other thing that you get is somebody who's aware that just having a PhD and reading a lot of books and throwing out a lot of big words is probably not a great way of engaging with the public discourse. And so I had assumed that Pratap, really smart, probably ex-civil servant, probably worked in government a little bit. Did the, No, but he's, a, he's an academic through and through. So th- that was, I mean, that's my setup for this is that, you know, I'm always blown away by people who can combine high levels of intelligence with an understanding and a sensitivity for how things work and then being able to communicate those things in a way that's effective. I'll just add two things and I realize that we're speaking on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know my, I don't know myself, so please be my guest. <laughs> So it's uh, <laughs> putting India in its place. Pakistan speaks for exactly. India yeah. today. Yeah. Two Pakistanis. We're going to speak for India. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I just want to add, I agree with that. But if uh, listeners want to read, um, there's a number of great pieces that Pratab has done, but two stood out in my mind. One was, um, I'm Sansikrit. I, yeah. I, I mean, again, uh, you are a, a deep thinker, but the poetic level of which the it was less a column, more verse to me, and very deep ideas. I think somebody should uh, actually, if you want to get an introduction to Pratap, one is read that. The other is the piece you wrote on Amir Khan during the height of the controversy. And in it, there's one thing, uh, I think a lot of people carried that also, but it says true patriotism is being okay with sometimes being ashamed of some parts of your country. And I think that sort of confidence building, it, it just really got to the center of uh, what was being debated. Uh, the idea of who you are as a patriot, does it mean blind cheerleading? Does it mean, you know, think, putting things under the carpet? And I think that piece, again, I think it applies equally well to Pakistan and a number of other countries which are going through ideas of who they really are and, you know, how they need to mitigate those ideas in terms of support for what is fragile countries, maybe less so India, but increasingly problematic there too. So anyhow, Pratab, uh, rather than us uh, defining who you are. because <laughs> yeah, I haven't told you my favorite piece. Oh, please. Really, yes. No, 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 no. We'll let, I mean, I'll throw that in there. But yeah. Pratab, I mean, why don't you set us, like, for, for listeners that don't know who you are, like, talk to us. Who is Pratab Banu Mehta? Well, I mean, you know, I, I always remember Bullesha's Shah's opening like that. Bulla ki jana mein kaun? I mean, I mean, I mean that, that, that's got to be the starting point and, and, and self-presentations and autobiography there's always some less, something sort of awkward and shameless about them. So I'm not sure I'll kind of represent myself. I'll just say a sort of couple of things about what I do and, and, and you can make make of it. I think I want to begin with the point Fassi raised, which is about academics, the relationship between academics and the public sphere. Um, uh, I was an academic. Um, I did a PhD. I taught political theory at Harvard for 10 years. And I must confess that I actually have not just enormous respect 
but I think the highest ideal is actually the contemplative life. There are too many people trying to change the world, too few trying to understand it. And a scholar who says, I'm writing a book that only two people in the world will read, that non-instrumental attitude is something I absolutely adore. I mean, I, mean, mm. I, 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 I think that's the starting point of true inquiry. I think the public engagement part of it is when we move back to India from the United States after having lived in the US for 14 years and before that three years in England, two things became very clear to me. One was that our India, and I think this is true of this region as a whole, was undergoing this massive transformation. We had no idea where all the chips were going to fall. And when you're thinking what about... What year was this? This was 2001. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, I, I moved to uh, Pakistan the same year. Right. So, 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 so there you go, you know, that there's destiny. Peas in a right? pod, man. Right? Peas yeah. in a pod, right? Yeah. So when you're engaging with a fast-moving target, a lot of your thinking is actually very tentative and exploratory. I mean, we have no idea what this region will look like 15 years from now. Honestly, right? And so it required a medium that you could actually keep up with, in a sense, the pace of that. But the second thing I realized that in a democracy in particular, and, and I don't mean democracy just in a formal sense, but just in the sense that in a South Asian context where there's so much energy bubbling up from the bottom, Anybody who has the illusion that they can claim power over this society is going to come to grief pretty quickly. Oh, boom. So the question right is, yeah. who governs India? Well, it's not actually entirely clear. And so the point about the public sphere is the advantage is you don't know who will take up your ideas where and in what form. Right. Right. Uh, and secondly, it was an avenue of opening up a different kind of conversation, right, where I think the, you know, Emerson once said that, what one soul can receive from another is not instruction, only provocation. Mm. And hopefully it's a provocation to think where you basically say, look, before we come to our conclusions, before we settle down in our prejudices and our values, have you thought of this, this and that, right? Um, and I think that function of writing has been incredibly enjoyable uh, and certainly the you know one of the most exciting learning journeys uh, that i've experienced when did the when did the policy think tank sort of come about was that a lead on from the writing or was it the other way around or were they sort of simultaneous actually like most good things in life it was a complete accident uh, i had started public writing when i moved back to india i'd moved to a university thinking i'd have a university career jnu jnu so that's jawaharlal nehru university which is india's in leading sort of university. And for various reasons, uh, JNU didn't quite work out as it hoped. I mean, the students were absolutely fabulous. I mean, I have absolutely, I, I completely believe this, which is if you take the students seriously, they will rise to the occasion, you know, no matter how ill-prepared they are. Uh, but for various institutional and administrative reasons, JNU did not turn out to be as propitious as, 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 as I had hoped. And then we were faced with a dilemma, which is go back to the United States. I still sort of had that option. Um, or move to something else because unfortunately one of the big tragedies um, of South Asia, I think generally India, I can say with more confidence, is that it became clear that our public higher education system was sort of crumbling and it was going to be very hard to do with integrity the kinds of things you wanted to do living in that system. Now, you know, this is a broader complaint. I mean, Nietzsche said in the 19th century that living in a university is always living a life of a lie, as it were. <laughs> so so there is a kind of existential connotation to it. And I was deeply torn because I love teaching. Uh, but it became clear to me that public universities were going to take out more from you than 
you could actually contribute. For instance, one very small thing, which is the reason I chose Ingenio was it was one of the few universities in India where you could make up your own courses. You didn't have to teach syllabi drawn up by some anonymous committee, which was a politically horse-traded syllabi. Back in 1951. Sorry, yeah. right back in 1951, you know, that was a great advantage JNU had. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that keeps kind of JNU going. So, but there weren't too many other universities like that. And so we actually did go back to the US in 2004. I... My position at Harvard sort of uh, asked, you know, allowed me to come back. Uh, uh, and then the Center for Policy Research came out of the blue. Uh, it's actually an old think tank. It was established in the 70s. Okay. Uh, but by the late 1990s, mid-2000s, because of larger changes happening in the world, uh, the institution had sort of hollowed out a little bit. It still had some great people, but, you know, its average age was sort of 70 plus. And I think the people on the board, Center of Policy Research, who came, I think they were drawn by the public writing. I mean, that's how they kind of knew me. I mean, mm. I said, look, you've got the wrong person. I'm a political theorist. I know nothing about policy, know even less about the state. But I think it's to their credit that they said, look, here's a chance to build, rebuild a kind of new institution. I was also attracted by the fact that being in India had convinced me that what we needed to create were spaces which supported people at doing what they do best. Let, let them loose on the world protect that academic freedom, you know, with every last fiber of your being. And if somebody asks us, what's the exciting thing about CPR? Why do I have fun colleagues? And I do have incredibly fun colleagues. I mean, it's really, I think all of them would say this, which is, it's a place that supports you in doing what you want to do and doing it best. Yeah. So I just want to add um, a quick question here, actually. And this is in relation to some of the things that India is going through Imagine. these days and also in terms of your writing. But it's a very narrow question. Yeah. So, you know, there are certain words we come up with uh, I think I think it's fascinating what India Pakistan comes up with right. sometimes. So if you say you know you're Vela, and then you say okay, what are you doing, Velaration, right? <laughs> and, and 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 it's this word these days that I see you you use actually toleration. Right. And I'm wondering why do you use that instead of tolerance? That's a very good question. In fact, my next book is actually just on that. Okay. Right? It's, it's yeah. going to come out in uh, two months. It's a it's a short book. Uh, fortunately, uh, long books are beyond ones <laughs> these days. You know there is the. The standard critique of the idea of toleration, which is toleration presumes the power to, as it were, you know, withhold assent or, 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 or crack down. Um, and some would argue that toleration is actually antithetical to the conception of rights, right? But I think toleration has in the kind of common parlance, in the loose English usage that we use in South Asia, actually come to stand in for those values that we associate with tolerance and rights. So often people, want, what they mean when they say is you're being intolerant is you're violating my rights, right? So I think it's a word that has become rescued from, as it were, the theoretical baggage, which you very rightly point out it has, because even toleration was an exercise of power, where somebody in power says, look, I have the power to crush you. I'm choosing not to. Right. In that, in, 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 in that sense, in that sense, toleration always signifies the kind of high, you know the hierarchy of power. But I think the core issue that I think we are grappling with in toleration debate, and I suspect this again applies across South Asia, right, is there are two big debates that run through all our countries, and I think it runs through, in a sense, the the individual psyche of each one of us. I think we are sort of schizophrenic around this, as it were. 
And the two debates are the following. One is the debate between forces of social orthodoxy and the forces of social liberation, which is people in our society saying that there are certain traditional norms, often invented traditional norms, that individual behavior has to conform to, whether it's in terms of what people wear, what people, how people dress. Um, and particularly, the particular axis of that conflict always happens to be gender in one way or the other, right? Uh, who you can marry and so forth. So, and, and, and this is a process all societies go to through, right? The second process, which has kind of been overlaid on this, is what you might call the process of identity formation, right? Um, and I don't want to go into debate over partition and sort of so forth. Like that's, that's all in the past. But one of the things that's unleashed is that for the last 70 years, right, all of our countries have tried to create a narrative for themselves, some kind of identity, some kind of protective security blanket, right, that allowed us to answer who we are, right? Uh, we are Pakistani, we are Indian, what does that sort of mean, right? But that very process, the form it has taken has also trapped us into what I call an identity trap. Because the minute you ask the question of somebody, what is your identity? You are benchmarking it into something that you think is normal or acceptable. And that benchmarking is always going to be incompatible with some conception of freedom, Right. Yeah. So if you say who is an Indian, to me, the issue is not, you know, whether there are two conceptions of India. You know, people say there's a liberal one, there's a more reactionary one. But we also have to recognize that the very question itself, who is an Indian, already puts you in a trap. Right. Because it already says there's a benchmark. It already says there is a defined way of doing it. We can't be different from what we are. We can't be more than what we are. Mm. Right. And I think that identity trap is something we have sort of consciously or unconsciously, in a sense, drifted sort of into, right? And I think what we are looking for is a new language to sort of break out of that trap. And, 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 and the language that I think connects both of these debates, orthodoxy and conservatism and identity sort of, you know, versus freedom, is actually a language of freedom. There's, that we need to envision South Asia, India, not as a kind of federation of communities, where the goal is how do you actually manage the peace between communities that have distinct identities, right? It is how do you actually liberate individuals within all of these communities to actually create and experiment with their own identities. And many of the traditional things will remain preserved. I mean, I'm not saying people identity should not matter to people. But isn't it aren't so here's my problem right. with with really smart people. So right. we're on different sides. Right. Like you said, you know, writing a book for just two people. I have this I, I'd like to think reasonably healthy contempt right. for for, for academia because right, I think yeah. that there's a lot of in fact one of my great gripes in life is that some of the most incredibly and intensely intelligent yeah. people choose to sit inside a university and really rob larger society of the impact that they could have if they could develop the nuances and the, and the skills to engage in the public discourse because they're so much smarter than everyone else they would be much better at it than, than yeah. sort of some mm -hmm. of the people that are currently sort of engaged right but if, and yeah go ahead so but the, the problem with these construct, I mean, as a theoretical construct, everything you've said right. makes great sense. But kind of the cynical, the cynical side of me thinks, well, two things are happening at the same time. There are these constraints where people are boxed into their straitjackets of identity and, and social orthodoxies and what have you. But there's also a lot of experimentation. I mean, multiple yeah. identity and the degree of comfort that some of the millennials that I see yeah. across the region and globally have today, even I, and I really pride myself on being very, very comfortable with sort of multiple, like somebody says, what are you? So I say, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm Pakistani. Is so it what are you? Well, you know, I'm sort of, yeah. I mean, one answer is I'm Canadian. Yeah, exactly. Say so what, what percentage? 
percentages? I say 100% Pakistani. I say, what about religion? I say, 100% Muslim. So what sect? I say, well, you know, I don't like the whole mm. sect thing, but if I have to be, mm. I'm from multiple sects because, you know, they make, I mean, you know, Shias make a lot of sense to me, but Elvis make a lot of sense mm. to me. And there's a lot of Salafism that makes a lot of sense to me. And why can't yeah, I just, yeah. you know, so that thing about, yeah. you know, sort of experimental sort of picking and right. choosing and cherry picking, really, identity cherry picking. Right. Isn't that something we're already doing? It's not like I don't think the BJP uh, or the Jamaat Islami are preventing us from from going out and picking whatever we want. Absolutely right. And, and in fact, you could argue that actually that has a much older history. I mean, I, I don't, you know, we don't want to kind of fall into the trap of thinking that. But we're this, already this, falling this, into this, it. This, this, <laughs> this process is a kind of you know millennial construction. In fact, insofar as peoples of South Asia have kind of lived, right, they've always, in a sense, I mean, the vernacular language of negotiating identity is actually far richer and far more complex right? Sure. than our abstract ideological conceptions. Yeah. You can see it in music. You know, y- you don't ask these questions about origin as, 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 as insist- in- insistently, right? But having said that, I think it is important to ask this question, why doesn't all that energy, experimentation, you know, that, that natural liberality that is down there, why isn't that being channelized into, in a sense, stable institutional structures? Right? It's it's really hot. really hot. I have no answer to that actually. But I, I was just thinking about another thing I wanted to add is like basically this is sort of side, but I've also got a question for you, which is, you know, we also have this complaint, like, you know, we find all these great academics in Pakistan, why aren't you engaging more? And one of the problems is and I and I'd be interested in what you say is that it's actually their academic training that's the problem. Over time when you do a PhD, subsequently when you're writing for these publications, there's a certain reward. They're gatekeepers for these publications. They reward a very dense style and over time people People forget not everyone knows as much as you when you're talking to other experts, especially in, you know, furthering your field. Yeah. It takes some training mm. to get back if you're actually, if you want to reach out to the general public in ways that your material becomes much more accessible. Mm. It becomes something that people can at least drive. But a question I have for you, which I, now, I noticed this in one of your pieces recently, like, you know, you were speaking about Congress and how Congress is no longer uh, as uh, strong, but one of the things that you brought out was corruption. And now, one of the things that what I was excited about talking to mm. you was, how can I understand Pakistan by looking at India as well? Mm. Like, right. you know, how, where are our divergences? So, some of the people I know are the writers I've read. Everyone has this hope for Congress, that right. this is such a diverse country, that somebody who's really embedded in secularism and non-communalism can eventually keep it together. But their non-delivery, their corruption is an issue. Here in Pakistan, I have the same thing. Like, yeah. I have huge amounts of sympathy for the PPP, ANP, and I'm deeply disappointed mm-hmm. in their delivery. And uh, and I find that I make, you know, so what is the future of parties like this where, I mean, you've just had somebody elected who's gotten rock star status abroad, surprisingly, right. from a lot of quarters, partly because it's a delivery question. So I'm just curious about that. I think I think there are two things, right? Um, so one, I think the big lesson, which I think applies to the Congress and to the PPP, it actually applies to even other older parties in South Asia. I think that I think of the Nepali Congress, for example, as another, you know, in a sense, parallel, right? Which is, I think, the big tragedy of South Asia is, uh, you know, there's a political scientist who once said something very profound, um, which is that look, societies don't destroy their institutions; elites do, right? And I think the credibility of those elites, right, of these political parties, uh, 
for very legitimate reasons, uh, diminished considerably because of these corruption scandals, uh, because of their, 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 in a sense, inability to deliver. But I think the inability to deliver centers on one very crucial institutional question, which is these movements gain legitimacy in a certain historical context, Congress in the aftermath of nationalism and nation building. But you cannot sustain governance in the modern world unless you create inclusive and participatory structures of government. You can't have inclusive growth without inclusive governments. I mean, I mean, people are not going to be governed in the same old way. And, and you know, one of the challenges both our states are facing, right, is our states are designed for vertical accountability, which is if you can please your boss, <laughs> that's what accountability means. What are people demanding? Horizontal accountability. Our states are excessively secretive in the way they work. What are people demanding? Show not, me, tell me. Not just, me. not just show me, tell me, but the knowledge that we can generate now outside the state can shame the state more, right? 20 years ago, if your yeah. air was poisoned and the state didn't tell you, you won't know. Now there's an NGO with a you know monitor running around measuring your air, right? So the asymmetry of knowledge between state and society has changed, right? Centralization, decentralization. And on Pakistan, there's a debate. At what level of governance should what function be carried out? I mean, you know, the whole negotiation between public and private, right? You have the PIA strike here. But one of the big challenges in South Asia is our state still hasn't got clear on first principles, what should the state be doing and what should the private sector be doing, right? Mm. Now, these were debates and these were processes and structures that these parties, in a sense, refused to, as it were, engage with, right? None of these parties had real intra-party democracy, right? I mean, you know a party is going to decline yeah. at some point <laughs> and become more centralized and more corrupt if it doesn't have an internal institutional mechanism for renewal, Right. So in, in the Congress Party's case, it was obvious, right, which is there were newly emerging social groups. Congress could have easily incorporated them, right? The Dalit movement, uh, the OBC movement. There were no ideological differences. Well, can I just challenge yeah, this, yeah. This, this idea of not having these internal mechanisms of renewal? Right. I think one of the interesting things about both Congress and the PPP is that these instruments of renewal were enforced and and shoved down their throats. The renewal was the assassination of the party leaderships. And I think the sustenance of their relevance as political parties owes at least part of its, uh, of its being to the fact that the renewal happens the moment something is taken away and that sense of sort of bereave, not bereavement, but kind of a lot of people, I think, feel robbed when that happens. I, I, I don't know India, I would ask you, but I certainly know that, I mean, I was just hearing someone today explain how they reacted to the news about Benazir's assassination yeah. back in 2007. P people who had nothing to do with the PPP, who never voted PPP, just felt like, just gutted, like right. internally gutted, that like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? It was traumatic. Happen? It was a yeah. trauma, right? If you had voted for two generations for, for the PPP, like across like 25 years, imagine that person's state on that day. And imagine the reaction in terms of, fine, they'll flirt with the yeah. PTI when they're really when they're really angry with, you know, Zardari or whatever, those people are going to vote for the PPP again. And it won't be for any reason other than that sense of, you know, somebody tried to take this away from me and I'm going to go and give it back to them. I know, I, yeah. I don't know, but yeah. I, I sense that particularly with Rajiv, yeah. that, that there was this kind of midstream 
robbery, like this highway robbery that took place. And, and a lot of those people voted not necessarily for, for functional reasons, but for emotional reasons. No, I, I, look, I think that's, that's absolutely right, particularly about Rajiv Gandhi's election and, and the absolutely unprecedented majority he got, because in a sense, it was the electorate making a statement, which is, you know, one way of thinking about it is, look, you can't take away our leaders from us. We can boot them out. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean exactly. it's, 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 it's actually something more elemental because those attacks and those assassinations became a symbol of a kind of, well, two things. One, a kind of attack on the nation itself, right? And, and secondly, I think the sense that, you know, if even these people aren't safe, right? What future do you think the country has, right? So, so that, that, that moment of anxiety. Having said that, at least in the Indian context, right? Particularly post-1977, it's actually very hard to argue that the family charisma alone made a difference, right? Indira Gandhi was booted out. Now, the opposition made a hash, hash of it. Mm. And, and, and in a sense, she came back to power. Rajiv Gandhi managed to fritter away a 400-seat majority, right? Within the space of five, you know, five years. Uh, if you take North India, right, which is which is really Congress's Achilles heel. I mean, one of the reasons Congress is not reviving is it doesn't have a major strategy for UP, doesn't have a strategy for Bihar, the Hindi heartland. Are UP ke liye to Bhagwan ke paas bhi strategy now. Matlab, I'm sort of coming from there, you know, sort of my parents but, were but born there. It's, you, does anyone have a strategy other than Amit Shahji? Does anyone have a strategy for UP? Mayawati won the state. Mulayam Singh won the state. They're not able to capitalize on that. But 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 they did have an electoral strategy. But 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 does India? So, I mean, this is a. I'm sorry, you know, sort of. I'm I'm disrupting no, no, your, no, your no, sure. train of thought. But Bihar and UP both are bigger countries than Pakistan. Right just as states in right. terms of you know how big they are and we often have this conversation about oh punjab is too big and certainly proportionality wise absolutely but really you have these states of 200 million people with issues that are so complex that i don't even pretend to want to look at them to try and understand yeah. them like there's phds waiting to happen like in every village in up in bihar right, right? what even if India's, I mean, it's. it looks to me like if we were to fast forward this discussion, because right. we got stuck in this yeah, typical sure. Pakistani sure. sort of like, you know, PPP Congress discussion, <laughs> right? Like, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the joke used to be, right, whichever party rules India will have to end up looking like the Congress party. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. yeah. No, but I mean, if you fast forward, it looks like certainly partly because the private sector is driving this and partly because the Indian diaspora is so so humongous and so influential that the shape of the Indian city and the Indian sort of sub-cities, like it's not just Delhi, yeah, it's yeah. Gurgaon and Noida, yeah. right? That those will become the kind, they'll become the places that Indians use to continue to fool themselves that India's like this, sorry to say, yeah. right? Like this kind of modern global superpower because it looks like Dubai, except that, you know, that's maybe less than a third of India. And outside those places, it seems to me that's UP and Bihar. Like that's the, like nobody has a strategy. Nobody has a, am I, am I wrong? Am I totally wrong? No, no, I think you're perfectly right about the issue, right? Okay. And, and, and the issue being in a sense that development is very uneven and it's really not, you know, anywhere remotely in the kind of the range of momentum that you say India has finally arrived. I think there's a huge exaggeration about India's footprint of the world, right? right? I, I think that part is right. Um, I think where I would disagree with you slightly is, in a sense, the geographical portrayal of it, right? Okay. So, and the geographical portrayal in the sense that, despite everything, right, you cannot escape the fact that Gurgaon is in India. You just have to 
you know, sort of drive for two minutes and you will encounter poverty and destitution. Okay. You will encounter the same sort of, you know, ill-formed roads. I mean, we don't even have roads where you can actually sort of, you know, have a decent kind of traffic intersection, right? The same dysfunctionality of the state, right? The same nexus between contractors and the state that has kind of disfigured the city, right? So I don't want to leave the impression that sort of, you know, there's a kind of, there's a Gurgaon paradise and then there's a kind of the badlands of UP. On the other end, the interesting thing is, you know, because places like Delhi and Gurgaon are actually sort of, you know, hugely expensive. A lot of the real dynamic industrial activity is actually beginning to happen in the middle of places like UP. In fact, UP's growth rates are not bad. I mean, just in pure economic terms, UP has actually not done badly the last, you know, seven to, se you know, seven, seven to ten years. We're going to have right? to write a memo to right. all the Mahajars in Karachi. Right. right? So all, yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> all the MP. <laughs> guys, right. guys, MP, <laughs> UP's figuring it out. <laughs> exactly. <That's right>. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, you know, so, so so in that sense, that the geography the geography of development is actually quite sort of complicated, and 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 you know one one interesting way I'm sure it's the same in Pakistan as well, but you know you just drive along UP, right? The one thing that the last few years of growth has done is completely transformed the demand of education. So the state has a very dysfunctional education system, but the poorest of the poor are spending whatever they have, starving themselves to send their kids to private school, right? Now, at one level, you know, that's the kind of underlying sort of change which you can, which you can see even in, 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 you know, in the, in, in, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of UP. No. That's fascinating because yeah. I, sorry, Fuzzy, you know, this, and I've, I, I gave this presentation uh, once uh, right after sort of the Swat operation because there was this whole conversation about, well, the Taliban are like 60 kilometers yeah. from Islamabad. And sort of to explain to people that if you drive from Islamabad towards Swat and you just take a picture of every billboard, every second billboard was advertising private education. So yes, this country has a lot yeah. of problems, but this latent, like white hot, incandescent sort of, you know, yeah. demand for education is something that people don't quite sort of take into their take, take into account in terms of analyzing this you know and and we worked on this together we worked on the march for education campaign fussy fussy yeah. and i worked yeah. on this campaign which was kind of a precursor to what i'm doing now this alif elan thing and you know we we kind of one of the reasons i think we had a we had some success with march for education was that we took cognizance of the fact that this is not a demand side issue anymore mm -hmm. in, in this country at least and that's yeah. that's what i hear from exactly. pratham and from exactly. everybody exactly. in india that that works on this yeah i mean i actually just want to shift back to another question which mm -hmm. i was so one of the things that i find interesting about india and i'm not somebody who follows india uh, very deeply so musharraf will be able to ask you but really i'm sure you see more clearly <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that i find interesting about india especially over the past 4 or 5 years i i, I find as a nation uh, both from its government sponsored things is that it's able to project an image to the world whether that's overestimating what it is or not is another question but I'm wondering within India, also within the discourse, so you've got issues like education mm. under development and really severe mm. problems, actually, and issues that have also suddenly emerged, like, uh, you know, with the Delhi uh, gang rape, uh, you know, things that mm. you're acknowledging now. But I'm wondering is that is the national discourse very tilted towards um, 
urban metros and their potential, how they're contributing compared to the rest of the country? Because um, it's it's sort of the case in some ways here, because like if you look at Balochistan, it doesn't make the mention as often as or treated as equally in terms of like even just news parity. So... There's one sense in which that's absolutely true, which is the structure of the Indian media has made the rural invisible, right, in ways that are absolutely unprecedented. I mean, you know, you just have to watch the evening news, right? What are they picking on? There is right now, for example, a major drought going on in parts of India, Vidarbha, Bundelkhand. If you watch television news, you would not know that that was actually happening. So just right? switch Tharpakar right? with... Right, exactly. right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that you can actually analyze. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a structure of the kind of the media market, the way it's kind of, you know, taken on itself, the idea of sort of representing um, uh, uh, India, in, in, you know, in some ways. And right? Pratap, just right. go into that structure yeah. a little bit more. So that's all so because it's Delhi and Mumbai is that, is, or Kolkata. Like, what is what is the structure? Is it overly, is it over-representation of the urban middle class or is it so, something so, else? So, so, so it's two things, right? One, obviously, the structures of advertising, right? What kinds of products hmm. will look for advertising okay. and where. Yeah. Uh, but the second thing, you know, and, and I'd recommend a book if, if you haven't actually seen it, uh, uh, no relation of mine, somebody called Nalin Mehta has just written a book on uh, the Indian media, particularly television media. Okay. And one of the very startling points he makes there, right? So India has all these news channels, right? Literally hundreds of them, if you add up the regional channels, right? No sane market should be able to sustain them. Except one or two, not a single channel has made money in 15 years. A lot of them are right? vanity projects, right? So so they're vanity projects, they're projects for buying influence, they're projects for sort of, you know, laundering money perhaps, sure, right? I mean, sure. sort of media has become... I mean, what, I wouldn't, what, I wouldn't what, know anything what, about what, that what, in what, Pakistan. What, what, we what, don't what, have right? anything like that. Right? Yeah. So, 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 so it's very hard to argue that this media is in a sense either driven by some not just conception of public purpose forget that for a minute right but even any pretense to actually representing India or telling the whole story it's driven by a very complicated set of economic imperatives that most of us outside do not even begin to begin to understand right so in that sense the media has actually made the rural India visible invisible it's sorry invisible sorry yeah. I, 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 um, has, has, has made it invisible but I think there's a flip side to it which is I think the way we now think of rural-urban connections, given the developments that have happened, connectivity, roads, education... It's a very dated... Yeah. Is, is also actually very different, right? Yeah. So, so think of a sort of typical rural family, right? Where one brother has kind of become a migrant in the city, right? The circular migration comes home for the harvest, goes back, right? The way they begin to define themselves, right? Uh, in terms of their own identity, right? is also becoming much more complicated, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, 20 years ago, Indian politicians were pretty confident they knew what India, rural India wanted, right? Now, rural India itself as a category, in fact, you know, one of the striking figures is 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 fifty percent of the income generated in rural India has nothing to do with agriculture, right? It's actually small wow. industries, mm. all those kinds of things. Is right? that really? Yeah, fifty percent. Yeah, yeah, so fifty percent. That is of, huge. Of, it's, of, of, it's, it's kind of non-farm, you know, sort of income, right? So, in a sense, what we think of as the rural right, has also undergone a massive transformation. The second way in which rural has gone a massive transformation, and, and that's where actually the, the, the media influence is interesting. I think there's new data going to be coming out soon, the National Family Health Survey, that the fertility rate in India has been dropping. In fact, if you look at, I think, I think some data suggesting in almost 20 states, it's actually now close to just replacement level, right? Now, we know two factors drive this. Traditionally, women's education drives fertility rates, right? And, 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 and South Asia as a region had kind of lagged behind this. But there's actually some evidence suggesting that the fact that this kind of 
urban lifestyle, right, as a representational model, has now kind of so percolated, seeped, into, yeah, seeped yeah, in, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 become sort of an autonomous source of change, or you could argue just by keeping bu- people busy watching. <laughs> watching television yeah. Yeah. fertility rates are doing so the whole interplay of rural and urban right also needs in a sense to be imagined very differently than we thought of what we thought of as rural 25 30 years ago it's interesting because in um, one of Stephen Levitt's books, he mentions this study in India where where there was cable in rural mm-hmm. areas and some of the dynamics between men and women started changing over time. Yeah. And they were just showing one of the unanticipated uh, benefits of it. Just uh, another uh, sort of question, and this is like, I've always wanted to ask this, so forgive me on this one. It's like oh. in Indian movies, why is the bad guy most likely to be called Rakesh? Like, Rakesh. Yeah, I mean, like, why does that happen? Is it? Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting and observation. Actually, that's, that's not the first name that I, I, comes I to my mind. I bet you anything right. that there is absolutely no empirical evidence. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Zero. Like, the other one is Robert. Ra- yeah, yeah. If, if it's a Christian Ra- name, Robert. it's Robert. Robert. No, 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 yeah. no, it was Robert. No, I mean, you know, in, in fact, I mean, you know, one of the problems with Indian cinema is actually why it's become so boring is that actually there are no villains anymore these days, right? I mean, I mean, the whole sort of, yeah. the, the whole genre. Of Who was the last great villain? I would be Nana Patekar, no? Yeah, and, and, and Nana Patekar was also kind of bigger artist in a way. I mean, he, he, I mean, he did a lot of, I mean, I mean, he was also a villain, but he was also the great cop also, yeah. right? So, yeah. so in that sense, it's, it's, sure. right? yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but, but the villain in the, in, you know, and, and, and I think it's an interesting question whether in Bollywood, right? I mean, one of the problems with Bollywood right now is that there was a kind of mythological form of storytelling which characterized Bollywood, right? Two things characterized the old Bollywood. One was this mythological sort of, you know, exaggerated... And the other one was Ma. (laughs) Ma. But but the Ma was also mythological sort of... Sure, I guess, yes. And the second was an incredible grammar of emotion which was the music, right? I mean, the films are all completely forgettable but the music sort of lives on, right? An incredible grammar of emotion. That's like, you can't buy that kind of smart, man. No, 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 no. No, let's just take a moment and just... I am Sanskrit, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. That re- this is great, but that's like well, word for word. So my favorite Patab Banu uh, Banu Mehta sort of piece by far is his analysis of Modi as a communicator. Which you won't find surprising given given our discussion, <laughs> right. you know, over the no, just the analysis right, yeah. of like the Swatch Bharat right. and and this whole focus on telling the story at the expense. I mean, this is what Pratap was saying is that when you're this fixated on telling the story, there's almost a guarantee that the content, that the actual journey is like nobody's going to ask about the journey because everybody's sort of eating out of your hand as you are telling the story, mm. and that storytelling as an act of political disruption almost is, is really kind of the thesis in that piece, right? I find that to be fascinating because I think if you relate what, what Pratap is saying in that piece and then you sprinkle that over the thing that we call Trump, should we tell listeners a secret about our little Trump thing? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, you, t- you tell. Uh, we did an episode on Trump and how, you know, it's been... Uh, we canned it. Yeah, so we, we deleted it at the end of 30 minutes, yeah. what, 40, minutes, 40 we, minutes? We just deleted it because it felt, frankly, because it felt um, inorganic. Inorganic, But, but to yeah. me, that the thing that Modi has done in India in terms of the storyteller and, and the and the the political perform the art of the political performance in a sense that's now because of the way in which 
information is exchanged in 2016 and will be in 2020 and 2030 and 2040. And I'm not predicting I know what it is, but if it even keeps pace at where it's been for the last decade, then this thing is going to become much more definitive. This thesis about the performance over the substance mm -hmm. is going to... So what implications does that, does that have beyond India and Pakistan? What happens when the world is... I mean, the world's most powerful man is somebody that literally, I think a lot of us consider to be a clown who is, I think, even today, even after Iowa, within a hair's whisker of actually potentially being a serious candidate from the Republican side. I would put the question in slightly different terms, um, uh, which is, I think there are two questions in, in embedded in what you're saying, two different ones. One is the question about communication itself and, 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 and the way in which communication has actually changed the nature of democracy, right? Which is, uh, has it become more plebiscitary? Has it become much more targeted, right? I mean, I mean, there's a whole kind of question of, if you think public opinion formation is the core of democracy, right? How does public opinion come to be formed? What does it represent? Uh, can it actually be manufactured? I think those are very deep questions that democracies have kind of sort of struggled with. And, 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 and I think, I mean, I think Modi's, to Modi's credit and his team's credit, they actually recognize possibilities of doing it in ways we did not think were possible in Indian politics, right? Nobody thought you could run a presidential style campaign in India, right? Yeah. Technology allows you to do that, right? And, and, frankly, sheer energy. I mean, I think there's one data point which says, you know, I think he addressed something like 700 rallies during the election and Rahul Gandhi addressed like 110. I mean, that just, it's, that's like a one to seven ratio, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's lights so, out so, right so, there. So, yeah. so the, but I think the second... Rahul missed out on his iodine drops as right, a child. Right. I mean, he, he needs to up the game. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if that's he missed a, out on his iodine <laughs> drops, then there's no right. game to up. <laughs> As an Oxford man, I should not comment on a Cambridge graduate. <laughs> so, that's a. Uh, but I think the second thing, which which I think is 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 to my mind the more serious issue, because because I actually do think I still have confidence that in democracy some of these things are self-correcting, okay. which is it can provide an opening, it can catapult you to power. But I, by and large, think actually people have a much more level head than we actually give them credit for. So here's Narendra Modi, right, the great communicator, and within like weeks of winning in national election, he starts losing election after election again, right? Lost mm -hmm. Delhi, right? Right there, just lost Bihar. Um, and, and one of the lessons of Bihar was that actually the same thing doesn't work in every campaign. So, I, you know, I, I think these are cycles democracies will go through. I think the harder and the deeper question, which Trump sort of, somebody like Trump raises, and some would argue Modi also raised that in a parallel way. I mean, it's a very different political structure and so forth is, which is, is there a vein of unarticulated, untapped rage and fear that mainstream political parties have not only not been able to recognize, but they are seen to be shutting out yes, a bunch of questions, and skirting. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and one, I mean, it's an oversimplistic explanation, but one, one, one sort of, you know, simplistic explanation would be in a sense that, look, last 20 years was a project of globalization, uh, which involved a compact between elites around the world. And it was a hugely successful project at one level, right? It's created enduring international institutions, certainly for intra-country inequalities. India, India has benefited greatly from integrating into the world economy, right? But the fact is there were a large number of losers in that project, mm. right? And it got to a point where many of those losers began to feel that there is no narrative for them, right? And and this very bizarre phenomenon you have in the US, right? Which which you also have in India, right? There's the majorities, minority complex. But a lot of white working class people, right? Yeah. Beginning to feel 
hey, there's no narrative for us. We are not part of this global elite. On the other hand, we can't even claim victim status, right? So there's this kind of dual rage, right, which is expressing itself in rage on the race question on the one hand, right? Yeah. And and I think the, the challenging question is, in a sense, why is it that mainstream political parties, right, sort of become a little tone deaf to these things that have been bubbling up and, you know, and and and, and, and I think that's, that's in a sense, the, the question. Because, look, for voters, I mean, elections are really about a choice between two alternatives. And the question is, who looks more credible to you? And I think the deeper question is, why have we come to a situation where many voters are beginning to feel, which is, I don't care about Trump, but this guy looks patently insincere, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, if I may ask, and I, I, I know we wanted to discuss like not too much about the India-Pakistan thing, but if there's sure, the opportunity, sure, if yeah. I could. So, I mean, I found one thing that's interesting is like, I think in some ways we've moved beyond Pakistan, India having its historical bone of contention, which is Kashmir, and now it's much more about bigger ambitions. What do we do in the region? Who controls? Who calls the shots? But I've always wondered about Kashmir, and it's interesting things like, I've always personally never felt as strongly for it in, in a way that I do see that there's um, a lot of travesties, a lot of excesses, and that, yeah, Kashmir can't go on as it is. But, I mean, what's the option set for India? I mean, India could conceivably never lose a piece of its territory. It would be a domino uh, effect. So what's, what's the future? Why is it that, in some ways, India is not able to... Uh, you know, get the population uh, in a way that it could work out well. And and I was yeah, just reminded yeah. of this. Like, it almost seemed comedic recently when Anupam Kheer right, said, yeah. one of the reasons why I've not been invited to Pakistan yeah, is yeah. because I'm a Kashmiri pundit. And yeah. we're like, no, you're a bad actor, man. That's the reason we didn't give you the visa. I mean, I would give him that. I actually do think he's a he, he's a good actor. The point is, he's taking he seems to be taking his acting into the public sphere. Yes, which is, <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I think two two different set of answers, right? So, so one a general point about the Indian experiment, let's call it right, yeah. the Indian political project. Um, one of the remarkable successes of the Indian political project, and actually, I think you have to grant India that, no matter where you come from, is that wherever it has tried democratic incorporation, it has kind of succeeded, right? So potentially, this could be yes. 20 different countries. We had, you know, the Tamil movement, secessionists and stuff. It created innovative structures for incorporation and participation, right? The two big failures are the northeast of India and Kashmir, right? And partly Punjab for a brief while. And the common thread to what, and, and, and I'll be the first to say this, which is wherever the Indian state has tried a heavy repressive hand, right, it sort of backfires, right? And in Kashmir in particular, there is no denying that there is a history of a repressive Indian. And now we can argue what the reasons for it, but, but that fact remains, right, which is um, uh, it's the only state where until recently, you were not confident that the elections were free and fair. By and large, we've done a remarkable job of elections. And now we're doing a very good job in Kashmir. But, you know, the fact is that, you know, till the 1980s, 1990s, everybody thought elections were rigged and, and for good reason, right? It is also a state like the Northeast that is in the vicious cycle of whenever you have sort of great military presence in a state, right? The fact is you've had, you know, 300,000, 400,000 troops in Kashmir. Uh, you have the Armed Forces Special Powers Act in place. And that does have a psychological effect on the people. I mean, uh, you know, I just started to think, what would it be like for me if I were to live under, right, those kinds of conditions, mm. right? Now, the one step that India has taken forward and where it has, I think, achieved some success, I say, is that over the last 10, 15 years, 
it has now tried the mode of domestic democratic incorporation it's not fully successful yet i mean i think the test will be the day we can sort of you know let go of the armed forces special powers act right so that's on the kind of domestic side which is which is it is i i, I will be the first to say that it is part of a unfinished project of democratic democratization and that should be the core value at stake right not indianness sorry not indian not this indian, goes back to your point not about indianness because because i'm actually convinced that actually democratization produces a deeper form of you know indians like to say unity in diversity i like to say diverse in unities mm. which is once you allow for democracy it will allow people to create very different kinds of connections right yeah. so and and in fact i think india stays as a nation because it's democratic if it were to become autocratic it would actually split up right yeah. so i think there's a deep connection between the indian project and the democratic project if india is not a democracy and would it be uh, clumsy like in your right. view to sort of then say that maybe the ayub khan years fast forwarded sort of you know the fissipediousness of of this project the one that Uh, the one that we are a product of right right i mean uh, look uh, you know I, i can't come to be an expert in pakistan but 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 just in comparative politics terms right the 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 two sort of challenges for pakistan right in in, in that project is one was the kind of the construction of a idea of national identity and at least in india there is a perception and i think in a lot of the literature i mean you know farzana sheikh for example the sense that the identity narrative somehow was constituted out of a kind of negative right we are not india yeah. right <clears throat> and there were various attempts to kind of you know convert a south asian country into kind of more of a station mold which weren't going to work i mean we knew there were fraught projects to begin with right but the fact is leaders tried them right so so one of the challenges for pakistan is is in a sense and i think you know it's 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 not an easy challenge because you did not have in a sense a political party because one of the good things about the congress is that uh, the years of the nationalist movement had given it an institutional, institutional structure that structure. allowed yeah. those negotiations to take place in whatever incoherent form they and did. our institution was right? one guy right uh, yeah one guy the, the legitimacy questions and the second in the process of state formation the balance of civil military relations hmm. right has kind of sort of shifted right in 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 various ways and to lay on top of that i think the mistake which i think many pakistani leaders have made and and we discussed this 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 afternoon which is you know by allowing itself to in a sense be a frontline state in other people's conflicts i think pakistan has paid a very heavy price for that right and and by the way it's true of many states in the cold war that those states that became the frontier of those conflicts right paid an incredible price for those those conflicts in a sense it's kind of not sort of you know recovered sort of from that but on the kashmir question just kind of returning to it which is look i think in heart of hearts most people on both sides of the border i think recognize that realistically by force changing borders is not going to be an option right i mean we are nuclear weapon states i mean it's worth reminding ourselves <laughs> of that 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 little brute, that little brute fact right right no uh, but what if we take right, the force part out of the right, out of the right, equation right no 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 the the really important part and 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 which is the way to sell it politically right is my own conviction is that the kashmir issue can be settled only in the context of a larger reimagination of relationships across south asia right so as as we began with right there are all these traps we've kind of boxed ourselves into right and i think the premise of let's say the musharraf manmohan framework right was a small step in that direction which is you know if we had open borders would the whole issue of kashmir actually matter that much right if our national identities were not constituted by this axis of animosity would 
Kashmir matter that much. Right now, Kashmir matters and the stakes are high because it's at the crossroads of two national identity projects. If the character of those national identities changes a bit, right, then the stakes are lowered. Then you can actually focus on these other questions. And, and you know, there's a joke in philosophy that there's never a solution to a philosophical problem. The only solution is you change the question, hmm. right? And I think in Kashmir, I think right now, what we need to do in a sense, throw cold water. Say, look, the core has to be the protection of the individual liberties and democratic rights of, of ordinary citizens, just like it has to be the case across all of South Asia. And there are ways of liberating ourselves from this siege mentality by beginning to make borders irrelevant. Once those borders become less relevant, the stakes actually become, you know, much more easier to handle. So I think that's the kind of the route into thinking of a new kind of sort of, you know, imagination, right? And look, it's not What's just... What's the timeline in your in your mind for, for something like that? Look, that... I mean, I'm not asking for a specific year, but I mean, so, so, clearly so, so, we're not so, so, thinking so about like... So, so, so here's my timeline, right? Which is both India and Pakistan, right? The next 15 years are crucial because of our demography, right? This is the window we have where the dependency ratio is favorable to us, where you have this great youth bulge. Uh, and if we blow these next 15 years, then it's very likely that South Asia shall forever remain poor and conflict-ridden, hmm. right? What's your What's your tip over year? Ours is 2043. 2043 so, is so, when we stop benefiting right. so, so, from so, so, the so, so, demographic. So ours has now come down to about 2030, right? I mean, in, in, okay. it's, it's, it's actually, and it might actually even come down faster because I think for all of these changes in fertility, yeah. uh, we yeah. have actually sort of, in a sense, kind of overest, uh, or, or rather underestimated the rate of that change. So, by the way, just for the right. listeners, this is yeah. we're talking about the demographic dividend sort of year right. in which the young population stops growing faster than right. the old population. So right. for Pakistan, yeah. uh, I think uh, Dure, has, uh, who works at Pied, has calculated 2043. Right. And, and Pratap, you're saying for India, it's 2032? 30, yeah, 20, right. So the real issue, right, is, is if we miss this opportunity, we're going to pay a huge cost. I mean, I mean, then forget about, you know, I mean, you know, the joke about India used to be, it's a joke used in several contexts, is India is a country of the future and shall always remain so. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So you shall... That's a very good one. You have to think about it, though. Yeah. Right? You, can't, you can't just, you know... <laughs> so, 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 you know, so you shall always remain in the future, right? So, therefore, and, and, and I, I know... Frankly, it's not a very popular view in India that, you know, many in India are beginning to feel, look, why do we even care about the region, right? Mm. Let's just kind of bypass the region, outgrow it, connect with the world. We have our American diaspora. We are part of Silicon Valley. You know, why the hell do we need to worry about Sialkot and so mm. forth, right? But the fact of the matter is that those unresolved issues, right, which, which burst out in unusual ways, sometimes calmly, sometimes across the LOC, they are a great drag, on our societies and our economies, right? And I don't mean just in prosaic terms, defense spending, all of that. We'll probably still have defense spending. There's a big dragon lurking next door, all of those things. But I think the incohate psychological way in which the burden of the past still distorts our, democ our, our, our democratic politics, right? The character of our nationalism, the way politicians are able to use our nationalisms to, in a sense, create fissures within society, right? It's it's a huge distraction. I mean, the amount of intellectual energy, peacekeeping, you know, all of that we have to devote to just kind of, you know, keep a lid on that conflict. If we were liberated of that burden, I think the nature of our politics would transform. Um, so in that sense, I do think there is a sense of urgency about 
process that I don't see this simply as, you know, something that you have to achieve at the end of a long process. It's actually a necessary instrument to get to in the, saying, yeah. do we want South Asia to be a zone of freedom or prosperity or do we want it to be a zone of identity traps and conflict? I mean, it's interesting. That's heavy. Gherat or identity is, I mean, I often wonder is like how on top of our scale of once it is. I sometimes find that it's quite high, actually. Yeah. It's not going to be an easy thing yeah, to transverse. Yeah. We speak of certain yeah. things, but we get sidetracked fairly easily. Yeah. Um, Just a, another quick question. Do we have time? I don't know. You tell me. Well, I mean, we're going over a bit, but, you know, I'm sort of okay with it. No, I think we're having too much fun with these things, Fussy. Yes. Like, last last, uh, last week, uh, Pratap, we did this. I told you about this episode that we did. It was an hour and 36 minutes. Everybody keeps telling us 20 minutes, 20 minutes. We, we started with an hour. We did another hour. We did an, uh, Then we did 40 minutes, I guess. Yeah. Then we did, like, an hour and 36 minutes. And we've just, uh, we felt, I mean, I really feel the love, and I'm really, really really sort of I feel blessed that yeah. people are listening or at least people pretend to be listening. Yeah. <laughs> so let's keep going. I I, yeah. I I have to tell you we could go for another couple of hours and I I wouldn't sort of I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. So go on. So just a quick question. I mean, the other thing I've been noticing obviously with the meat bans and you know with your stars speaking up and whatever. What is the future of the Muslim in India because I mean as an external Exactly, exactly, exactly. Hold yeah. on. You've like you just raised Kashmir. Now you're raising like that's okay. You've gone. No, 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 no. It's fine. Of course, I know. I know. It's okay. He's trying to say it. <laughs> Wait a second. First of all, I thought that was. Bro. I know. I know. I, that, I don't that know. Was, what's gotten into what me? Is wrong with you? you know what all our friends are gonna say. Yeah. You have to stop hanging out with me. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I swear, I'm gonna get DMs. Give me a shut up. <laughs> no, but usually this is the kind of I would expect Fussy to say, "Hey, why can't we just get along? We're, we're just the same." Because he's like this happy-go-lucky <laughs> peace, <laughs> peace Nick. <laughs> so, so I am, but you know. Wait, I, so you're seriously gonna ask that question? I, I can't believe it, but I really want hell to. Of, ask this hell question. of a way to to welcome Pratap Banu Mehta. Yes, yes. Go on. So, no, so I mean, what's the point of coming to Pakistan and not get a tough time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, to be honest, like, yeah. it's such an yeah. honor to have you. Yeah. I, I, I would feel bad at the end of the day if every little question I've had, just I just don't ask it. But I'm just wondering, like, what is the future of, oh my God, the, what is the future of the Muslim in India? <laughs> okay, so, 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 so consistent with my, what I just said about changing the question as a way of answering it, yes. I think I'll reframe the question slightly, sure. right? Which is... The thing, the problem is he's smarter than us. No, so <laughs> he's going to squirm out of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's made the so, premise already. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, it is, you know, kind of question, question the premise, which is, I don't think the question of the future of Muslims in India is a sort of separate question, as if one could say that somehow... Um, that question can be detached from the future of Indian democracy. Let me put it this way, right? Which is the future of India is going to be safe and the future of Indian democracy is going to be safe only if Muslims in India are safe and flourish, right? Mm. Because, because there's, I mean, you know, you can think about it crudely, right? I mean, I mean, this is 120 million people, right? I mean, how can you not have a social structure? By and large, Indian democracy for all its faults, right? I mean, and, 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 and even though the Hindu-Muslim politics is a divisive, divisive issue in politics, the fact of the matter is that both at a vernacular level, and I actually think at the popular level, I, I think actually the trends are in the right direction, Con contrary to what our friends in Times Now might actually sort of project, right? <laughs> uh, 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 you know, in fact, 
you know, since 2002, I mean, as you know, there was a deep, steep decline in the number of kind of communal riots. One of the interesting things that's happened is the whole idea of kind of revenge riots, 2002, that the revenge thing has gotten a bit out of our system in, in a sense. And, you know, the dissociation of Indian Muslims for Pakistan, which used to be pretty automatic in the 70s and 80s, right? Yeah. I mean, they used to, that dissociation is now deep. I mean, so what caused that dissociation? So, 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 so the, the cause of that dissociation was an understanding and, 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 you know, this is the Indian construction of the terrorism problem, right? Yeah. That terrorism, whatever one thinks of it, is part of a kind of geostrategic struggle between India and Pakistan. It has actually nothing to do with the Indian state Muslims. Of the Indian Muslims. Either the state of the Indian Muslims and the fact that Indian Muslims have time and again not just chosen to participate. Uh, Al-Qaeda had no success recruiting in India, you would have thought, you know, if this was a persecuted community, you know, we always say this kind of, right, this would be propitious hunting ground. Actually, quite the contrary. Also, the fact that no matter what happens, right, there are always secular political forces available that can actually channel some of that political energy, right? Mr. Modi and Amit Shah try something in Bihar. There is a Lalu standing there. Now, there are lots of other problems with Lalu. I mean, you know. But on uh, this, he's... Sort of, he's, you know, yeah, uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So... So I think that the, the I don't know how to phrase this, but I love Lalu. Oh, oh absolutely! No, 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 no he, he, he is. I, I, I absolutely love him as well. He's like, one of the truly like remarkable a good, politicians. Like a good Irishman, I also love my Lalu. So, 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 so this is one of the tragedies, right? Which is he is another supremely gifted politician. Not just supremely gifted, I mean, not just the most charming, but in his own ways will tell you the unpalatable truths, right? Mm. Um, and I think the tragedy is that, again, that enormous political talent frittered away when it came to running the state and administration, right? That disjunction between what it takes to be a good politician and what it run, what it takes to run a good state, right? Mm. He's actually a perfect example of that, that, that disjunction. And I hope kind of this time around, he's learned a few lessons. But... The point is that, in a sense, there are lots of forces, and, and not just that. I mean, you know, look, even the BJP, even the BJP, right? No matter what one thinks of its intentions and ideological moodings. The one thing Mr. Modi does know is that if there is a major outbreak of Hindu-Muslim violence, right? Now, we can define the threshold of major, you mm. know, eye of the, you know, this is a kind of Sorites paradox 40, thing. 40 right? is okay. 40 is okay, 100 is okay, <laughs> but, but if there is a... It will do two things which will make Mr. Modi's life very uncomfortable. First of all, it will completely put a damper on India's global ambitions. Mm. Because let's face it, India's global ambitions depend upon the power of the Indian example. This is the other enlightenment power, you know. And the only power India has, frankly, the power of its example, right? If it can say, this is a place that is the crossroads of lots of civilizations, cultures, can negotiate diversity, it will have a great future in the world. The second thing it will do, uh, as happened in Bihar, is that the more communal he goes, the more the opposition has an incentive to unite and an axis around which to unite. His electoral success depended upon dividing the opposition. And you could divide the opposition when it was a kind of normal election. But when the states become polarizing, right, the chances that the opposition unite will go up. So I don't claim to read anybody's heart or head, but I do think that the structural forces of Indian democracy... Are the protective canopy? Uh, 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 are the which? protective ca canopy within which I think Muslims will find a political space and political voice? Okay, I mean that's that's fascinating. I I mean I probably would like to agitate a little bit further on this question, right? Like because we hear a lot of this the Al Qaeda sort of thing, yeah, right? That Al Qaeda tried to recruit in India and it didn't have that much success. But we do know that 
Daesh, uh, Daesh sort of has had. Yeah. And so so I think there's a lot there, but I do also think that that's probably a second entire conversation. Right, yeah. And there's probably people, in addition to you, like that that follow this much more closely yeah. from a security yeah, sure, standpoint sure. That, that could really weigh in. I wanted to sort of just, I mean, we've talked to you about India, and that was really the point, because we want listeners to, to be able to sort of hear what you have to say about India. This thing about the similarities between India and Pakistan. One way to look at it is, of course, you know, that we are very similar. But I think I will say the sort of the, the, the thing that, you know, often is unpopular to say is that, in fact, we're not all that similar. I mean, I, I hear this uh, from a lot of people 70 years on, uh, inst- even institutionally. Yes, British common law in both countries. And yes, the IAS officers have a very similar attitude to what the DMG and now the PAS officers have. But that's the same thing as senior British civil servants. So like that doesn't say say much. They're not that similar. Institutionally, culturally, there's huge differences. I think that those differences are actually really useful because it helps us relate to each other as on an international footing. Whereas I think that the burden of the previous generation, the Manmohan Singh burden was that, you know, or Atal Bihari Vajpayee is that they come over to the border and they kind of sort of claim parts of this. And, you know, Musharraf, General Musharraf goes to Delhi and says, you know, I remember being from this. And there's a lot of young Pakistanis and Indians who are thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Like, we're not the same. Please don't pretend we're the same. Let us be different. Because in that difference is actually probably the path to sort of an enlightened understanding of each other. I actually uh, do agree with that, that, I mean, I find that my questions are based on, you know, we're similar countries and there's things that we yeah. can see how something similar. How well, it's it hot in both places. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and but, they're brown people. But, but, brown but, but, people. <laughs> can I just amplify on this yes, point? Yes. Because, because, because I think you've touched on something very important. Um, and, and, and it kind of explains the sort of the, the kind of this oscillation we have from kind of we go from sentimentality to animosity in like the space of two minutes. And, and again, it's a fissure that runs through each one of us. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually have seen that in conversations. Right. We just yeah. kind of. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think this demands a deeper, deeper diagnosis. And, 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 and one way of thinking about it is actually going back to the partition question. You know, Intezar Hussain just passed away and, you know, if you spent a lot of time reading partition literature, right, from Rahi Masum Razar to Manto, one of the things that strikes you about that literature in retrospect, which we haven't got our head around, is, so there's one narrative that kind of goes, you know, we're kind of the same, there was a civilizational unity, or something had emerged kind of post-Akbar, we created an accommodation and then these damned politicians came along and Congress on the one hand and Muslim League on the other and they just ruined everything right that is a kind of you know pretty dominant narrative which is and 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 in response to the narrative it's well intentioned it's well well intentioned and in response to that narrative we always retreat back to the space of culture and the space of culture is a very attractive space A because it's always uplifting I mean Mm. look you know music would dissolve half the evil in the world I completely believe that and also I hashtag Priyanka Chopra right right. I heart hashtag Priyanka Chopra I'm with you it's, 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 it's the good right but what we haven't come to terms is that not just in the events leading up to the partition, but even post-partition, the question you asked about sort of the fate of Muslims and Indians, yeah. right, was a very specific institutional and political problem, right? And the specific institutional and political problem was in the context of universal suffrage, 
how do minority rights get protected? What is the form of repression? And that was the negotiation from 1905 to 1947, right? Yeah. You give veto, you give, you know, proportional, you give... The fact of the matter is there was never any stable solution to that question and that problem. And frankly, we are still struggling with that problem in some ways. But the right? greatest, uh, but the greatest right. manifestation of the right. truth of that right. is Bangladesh's existence right. as a separate it, state, exactly. despite being next door right. to West Bengal. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So one of the things, and, 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 and we also then build these walls and barriers, right? And, and, and frankly, if you just pull them down, you, we'll all get a sense of vertigo, right? So, yeah. so, so we have to kind of psychologically handle them nicely. But the conversation that has to happen now, I agree with you entirely, has to be framed in terms of institutionals, in terms of our development needs, in terms of a shared vision around new kinds of political values. Yep. Now, the cultural stuff can be deployed as a resource, right? And, and, and certainly it's a big asset. I mean, look, you know, let's not deny its, 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 you know, its, its, its power. But any route through that problem to kind of saying it's the same culture is actually just denying 80 years of what that same culture, in a sense, did to us. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think you've made actually a very, you know, very powerful point. And which is why I think the question to stand back is, if you want to convert South Asia into a zone of freedom, individual liberty, prosperity, right? What are some of the fetters you have to remove? And if you remove those fetters, right, a lot of this interaction and so forth will happen anywhere and spontaneously. At a subnational level, right. this converges exactly with the point that you opened with, right? right. That the idea of Indianness is really rooted for Pratap in, in these freedoms. I, I like to do it in a little more sort of hackneyed way, which is that a lot of Pakistanis, because the concept of Pakistan has been reasonably fragile, are very, very uncomfortable with embracing the sub-nations yeah. that, that comprise Pakistan. And a lot of those sub-nations don't like being called yeah, sub-nations. Yeah, like yeah. a Pakhtun says, hello, like I've been speaking Pashto for like yeah. 5,000 years. I'd learned how to sort of chant in Arabic right. about 1,400 years ago or 1,200 years ago. And I learned that there was a mm. thing called Pakistan as a constructed word about 70 years yeah. ago. So don't tell me that I'm a sub-nation. And that's perfectly legitimate. And, and, and what, what I think for a lot of... I think modern forward-looking Pakistanis who are nationalists in yeah. the way that I am, you know, I think that the comfort that we need to have and the importance of federalism for Pakistan in particular, I think India's moved yeah. on. There's an evolved federal yeah. sort of, you yeah. know, conversation yeah. in India. But for Pakistan, we're, we are a very basic, fundamentally federal state. We must be, and it must be through the acknowledgement and embrace of these multiple na nations that comprise the Pakistani nation. And so if we can accept that, then it makes it easier for us to talk to India, not in this emotional sort of... Yeah. Uh, sort of straitjacket where we kind of forced to contend with all these demons of, uh, you know, this great new book by uh, Nisid Hajari. Right, sort right, of. Right, the, I mean, but that is some traumatic, brutal, right. barbaric right. stuff, right. right? I mean, and then the blood telegram yeah. and the whole sort of, there's, so I think we won't be able to have normal state-to-state -state interactions as long as we continue to allow these countries to be seen in a lens of, oh, but we're the same people. Like, I can't say to a Bangladeshi, look, man, yeah. we're brothers and we were one together yeah. because he's thinking... Well, <laughs> no, no, but he's thinking, like, that's the whole problem, dude. Yeah. We weren't one from yeah. the start. We wanted to get away. Yeah. You treated us in a way that helped us get away. Please get away from me and, like, speak to me in English because you don't speak my language and I don't speak yours.
so I, I do think we need to sort of... Uh, I just said one more thing to that. I mean, I, I, think I think your point about federalism and regionalism is, is actually absolutely spot on, right? And, and, and that's also a mode of democratic incorporation, right? What's that about? That's about a certain mode of inclusive governance that you can have a voice, you can have a space, right? But I think there is one fundamental value uh, that any functioning society in the modern world will have to reconcile itself to. Uh, if it's not to generate undue conflict. And that is the value of individual dissent, mm. including to the point of blasphemy, frankly. Yeah. Uh, which is, it is, the, it is, you know, it is the nature of this world that there will be lots of people who have their own individual conceptions of meaning and so forth. And any attempt to say that the state or even a conception of national identity can, in a sense, in the name of scripting an identity, crack down on those individual freedoms. To my mind, that is a recipe for, in a sense, conflict, right? So, I mean, look, let's face it. I mean, you know, the, probably one of the most vulnerable groups in Pakistan has always been the Ahmadiyas, right? Yeah. And, and, and partly because there is a kind of theological concern. I mean, Iqbal, who I absolutely adore, I mean, he's, he's one of the greatest intellectuals ever. I mean, the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam is, is the, in a sense, capstone of modern Indian intellectual history. It's philosophical intricacy and so forth, right? But even he on that particular question, right? Because somehow it became this kind of totem of defining a benchmarked identity. Well, right? it was the touchstone. Right? You had to sort of... Right? Yeah. The minute you have... Touchstones always create insecurity. You know, there's a joke in the 18th century that it didn't occur to anybody to doubt God's existence until philosophers began to give arguments to prove his existence. <laughs> and I actually think of nations that way. That, you know, Pakhtuns, Ahmadiyas, they'll all find hundreds of different reasons for engaging. The minute somebody sits down and says, this is what it means to be Pakistani, guaranteed there'll be a counter-reaction. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that's such a brilliant uh, way to present that. I agree absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I question. see this at very low levels where you speak to people. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm speaking just from the Pakhtun perspective. And, and it's exactly that. Is the moment you, somebody tells you that this is what you have to be minimum for you to be accepted. Nishta! Yeah, yeah, I agree. I just had a, uh, also another thing. I find this really interesting in the politics of uh, India, Pakistan. Is You, have you know, just to FYI, yeah. right? There's about 35, 40 people yeah. like standing around in a room somewhere right now about 20 minutes away that are like, where is Pratap? <laughs> right, right. Musharraf, Musharraf took him. If I just tell them I was with Fassi, they'll explain. Should we wind up then? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well... Uh, um, but finish your thought yeah, because yeah. I th I, you had... Sure. You were with, with, with an yes. important sort yes. of idea. Um, so... <laughs> Um, goes back to being in a boys' college. Like when you use even phrases like that, mm -hmm. you just think, "Ha ha." Show the No how old you get. By the way, so Pratap hasn't experienced this sort of the the lowbrow sort of quality of discourse between the two of us <laughs> since he was in college. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You have no idea how low low is. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I was just 
very quickly, I was just saying is like, you know, there's this articulation in the metros, even even in the rural areas where people... By the way, you keep saying metros and a lot of your viewers are going to be sort of thinking jungla bus and everything. Please clarify what you mean by sorry, metros. Sorry, sorry. Just metropolitan areas, urban centers, uh, semi-urban he means, centers. He means cities. Yeah. Go sorry, ahead. sorry. Yes. And, 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 and the point is like, there's this articulation. If only our country was honest. If only we had mm. rule of law. And, you know, it's fairly everywhere. And you then have these parties like up uh, you have pti mm-hmm. in pakistan and one would imagine that they would sweep right and and it just goes to show you that how these individual regional ethnic identities remain so strong that even though this is an articulation but what really concerns them is like these other levers that are important and uh, so i'm just wondering like uh, where do you see that going where does a party like up go no, so, so that's an interesting question, right? So, you know, and one interesting comparison to make in this context is I often talk to Indian students about the comparison between the Gilded Age in the US and its transition to a progressive era. Because we are kind of in that situation, right? Crony capitalism all over, big infrastructure, right? All of the stuff, right? City machine politics, right? Throw in a bunch of ethnic things in the mix. And the Amanis are the Rockefellers. Right, exactly. Yeah. The, you know, the, yeah. the, the big, right? In some senses, even worse, actually, right? Well, definitely richer. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one measure of this tradition is at, at, at least the American kind of crony capitalist controlled one sector at a time, right? These guys yeah, are all like, over right, the place. Four, four critical infrastructure sectors all at yeah, once, yeah, right? Yeah. But I think what the ARP moment demonstrated, and, and I think, I think Imran, was that there is that possibility that, right, people are willing to sort of not just vote on it, but that is an issue of big concern where if somebody tells them a story, going back to what I said, right, which is there is a structure of governance that was upside down. It was supposed to answer you to you. It answers to some big guy. It was supposed to give you participation. It actually excludes you. Right. It was supposed to keep things open and transparent. In, in fact, actually, a lot of murky stuff is happening behind closed doors. Right. So there is that possibility. I think. To capitalize on that possibility, you have to have this very incoherent thing called political judgment. Now, judgment is a very different thing than having an ideology or than having an idea or even being a great guy, right? Judgment requires, and particularly in elections in India and Pakistan, where you're actually talking about taking different diverse constituencies together, how do you actually project your credibility, right? And I think one of the things you're finding in our politicians, even the best ones, Right? Even somebody who was as good as Narendra Modi right, in, 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 in winning a national election. Their sense of confidence about how they read their messages and people is actually much less confident and secure than we think. In fact, I think most politicians, if you ask them... Incredibly right, insecure. You know, yeah, how, yeah. You know, we have no idea what the hell public opinion wants, <laughs> right? I mean, and it's certainly not what the television studio says it wants, but what is it outside of that we don't know, right? Yeah. And the challenge is, can you have a political movement that can capitalize on that moment and be and and you know up i think it's still a work in progress look uh, you know up is going to do very well in punjab and if it does well in punjab it's on a comeback trail um, don't go by the headlines in delhi i mean there, there's a lot of sort of you know kejriwal is has also learned a few tricks from modi he's a tenacious kind of character but their core constituency is still solidly behind them right and what precludes parties like up from having a sense of humor <laughs> like I mean, like no, just one inch of so so so, 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 the intrinsic feature of power is yeah. that you begin to take yourself too seriously, right? right? Yeah. I mean, look, humor is is humor always comes from the powerless and the marginalized, yes. right? The <laughs> most the most astonishing humor always comes from the power and the yeah. marginalized, right? Because yeah. you have to have the. I mean, anybody in power at some point will take themselves too seriously, yes, right? Right, yeah. right. So, 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 in a sense, ARP is kind of you know has kind of those those you know th- th- those traits but i think the possibility of those new kinds of 
uh, and look, party building is, I mean, no political party in the world. In fact, AAP's opening was the biggest that any new political party ever has. Political party building is a 2020 year affair. And were they World Bank funded or what was the They were crowdsourced funded, right? That's a, I mean, they were. They were <laughs> They capitalized on the bank of the world, which is meaning yeah. the entire yeah. world. Indian diaspora. The, 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 yeah. the, 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 you know, the entire world. I mean, yeah. and, and actually most of the contributions were, were Indian. In Domestic, fact, a yeah. lot of Indian yeah. capital actually yeah. sustained them in the early, early, yeah. early you know, yeah. um, uh, uh, sort of early days. But you need simultaneously see what made the Congress Party work in its early days. And let's not underestimate the fact was that it was a team, right? No matter what Jawaharlal Nehru did, you could point to 10, 15, 20 people who had lots of misjudgments and flaws, but fundamentally people said about them that their intention is good, mm. right? An ability to put aside differences. You know, Gandhiji said something which I, I, this is my favorite Gandhi quote. You know, he always said that our besetting sin is not our differences, it's our littleness, mm. right? Uh, that kind of ability, right, to be able to sort of negotiate difference and, right? Uh, That requires a very different kind of political judgment. So with all of these political moments, I think it's happening with Amran Khan, to a certain extent happened with Kejriwal. It became my way or the highway, yeah. right? Which is actually the antithesis of what politics requires, right? What politics requires is I can come talk to you, look you in the eye and say, you know, I understand your pain. Here's how we are going to sort of, in a sense, you know, deal with it. Swiftness with which the political class gets detached from that conversation. I think it's a big challenge. And look, I mean, these are complex societies, lots of, you know, so I won't underestimate the challenge of doing that. Um, you know, Imran Khan, I mean, I, I, I don't know Pakistan politics that well, but I'm kind of surprised that he's not out there in the space vacated by the MQM You know, in well, the in MQM Karachi, right? the par partly because the MQM hasn't vacated that space. Oh, okay. So I stand corrected. <laughs> Thinking that you know, perhaps uh, not, not, but it does. It certainly doesn't have the kind of authority that it sort of did, or perhaps it does. Uh, well, it's. I think it's a fascinating question for you know another yeah. another yeah, conversation yeah, no, because that's that, a conversation we should have in both of you visit India <laughs> inshallah <laughs> absolutely right. I look absolutely. forward to that uh, I think we'll wrap it up Pratap thank you so much this was really um, as I mean it was an education it fantastic. was fantastic thank you so much for making this time and, and just to summarize right uh, on your last bit there's this thing I read by Shobha Day which actually Uh, I'm sorry, I'm breaking We've gone it. from Pratap I know, I know, uh, already. to Shobha Day. Yes, yes. <laughs> We that, started that, with Bullet. That's raised me, raised me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but it's just another We started with Bullet Shah and we're ending with Shobha Day. So just, just talking about like this region, like, you know, she was saying that there are people who can do, those who can't do, and then there's the <laughs> it's, it's we're gonna summarize we're gonna excise this but her point being <laughs> yes. is being of being really limited being really petty and having that again going back to the beginning thing is the toleration thing which is you know just sort of uh bringing it up and it's great to have you here and i hope that we can uh have more opportunities like this i i yeah i think pakistan and india need to do a lot more of this I particularly agree. with PBM. Thank you so thank, much. Yes. Th thank you so much and hopefully we'll see you on your on your television channel next time, right? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, I mean I meant that was the trajectory, right? Oh from yeah, yeah, yeah. Graduating oh, yeah. from this to right? the right? video yeah, the video right. podcast inshallah. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, next. No, that's Absolutely. Right. Fantastic. Thanks so much Pratap. Thank you.